going to turn uh, to John chapter 9 for a moment. So if you uh, would like to find both places, you could, because I'm going to read a couple verses in John chapter 9 uh, as, as part of our introduction this morning, because we've been uh, using our, our, we've been going through a study on Sunday mornings on the miracles of Jesus during His earthly ministry, and we've been using these miracles that we've been preaching uh, from uh, to kind of give us some thoughts about miracles that Jesus performed in the, in the New Testament of our Bible in, in His earthly ministry. So not just studying through the miracles, but talking by way of introduction uh, about some, some truths about these miracles. And so that's what I'm going to look at in John chapter 9, but our main passage uh, is going to be Luke chapter 5 this morning. So if you'd find Luke chapter 5 and have that ready, uh, by way of review, when we've done some introduction uh, study about miracles, uh, we talked about four different words that we see during the earthly ministry of Jesus that describe his miracles. And uh, we won't take the time to review those today, but that was one of the uh, thoughts that we had given you. Uh, again, by way of introduction, we talked about those four words that describe his miracles. And we talked about four uh, different uh, categories uh, that you could put the miracles of Jesus Christ in. And as he, again, was here for his earthly ministry. And then six reasons we gave why Jesus performed miracles. And then we've finished off, I guess, this introductory material about miracles uh, by uh, telling you last time we studied one of the miracles, we said we were going to talk about what made a miracle credible. So what was it that made a miracle that Jesus would perform credible? Well, we gave you one of those two weeks ago. We took a break from our miracles last week, and we preached a message about worship and what our worship should be like. But we're going to continue, move on in our miracle study this morning. And I wanted to give you, we gave you one reason two weeks ago why Jesus' miracles would be credible. We said because there were witnesses that were present. You think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that great miracle of uh, Jesus rising from the grave. Think about all the witnesses that were present to be able to know, eyewitnesses to be able to know and to attest to the fact that Jesus truly had risen again. They were able to touch him. They were able to meet with him. They were able to eat with him as well. And so different things that, that the witnesses were able to do to be able to prove the miracles that Jesus had performed. But then number two, I want you to notice this, and I think we're going to get to see this from John chapter 9. Now, this is a miracle that we have already studied. So we're not going to study this miracle. We're just going to use it as a, a proof for the thought uh, today uh, to answer that question, what would make a miracle credible? And our second thought, our first thought was that witnesses would be present. But then the second thought is this. It was always proven even when it was open to scrutiny. Uh, we could say Jesus' miracles were credible, because there was always a way to prove that the miracle took place, even when it was open to scrutiny. Think about this in John chapter 9. Jesus, uh, the Bible tells us, there's a man that is born blind. He's born blind. He doesn't become blind. He's born blind. And the Bible tells us that Jesus heals this blind man because he anoints his eyes. And again, we've already studied this miracle. But he anoints his eyes with the clay that he made from spit on the ground. So Jesus spit on the ground and he made this clay, the Bible tells us. When that spit was on the ground, he made this clay and he anointed the eyes of this man who had been born blind. Well, after that miracle, there were many that knew that this man had been born blind. They, had, they, they knew of the reputation of this man. Uh, they knew his parents as well. We know that because we see it in the passage. And they look at this man who is born blind and they, and they literally don't even want to believe that it's really him. 
There's no way that this man who was born blind can all of a sudden be seeing now. So uh, there's much scrutiny that begins to take place. Is this really the man who was born blind? Now, if you're there in John, you can look at these verses. If you're not there, I'm just going to read them. But in John chapter 9 and verse number 8, it says these words. John chapter 9, verse number 8. It says, The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? This man would, as he, as he because of the problem of his blindness, he, he would beg. And so they said, Well, this was the man that we have recognized in the past who, because of his blindness, has begged. And so is this, is this not the man? Well, the Bible says in the very next verse, now notice this. Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. So there's some that said, oh, no, this is the man. But others said, no, 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 it's just, it's just somebody that looks like him. So much scrutiny that takes place after Jesus performs this miracle. But there's going to be proof of the fact that this really is the man that Jesus has healed. There's always proof of the miracle that Jesus performs even when scrutiny takes place. Notice, uh, the Bible says that the man speaks up. Here's this man that's been healed. He certainly should be able to give a testimony, right? I, I like that song uh, that somebody wrote many years ago. It talked about salvation and it said that uh, I, I, can, I can prove by my testimony that I was saved because the song says this, I was there when it happened. I was there when it happened. So because I was there when it happened, I know what Jesus did for me. It's almost as if this man speaks up and he says, I'm the one. This is me. I'm the blind man. I've been healed. And I was there when it happened. I got to see Jesus do it. And so notice what he says at the end of verse number 9. But he said, I am he. But then they take this man to the Pharisees. And they're still wondering because he gives the story of the, of the fact that Jesus has anointed his eyes with this, with this clay that he's made from the spittle on the ground. Is this really this man? Again, they begin to question it again. Now they go to his parents. Is this really your son, they say? So if you're there, you can look at these verses. If you're not there, look at verse eight, uh, 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 read verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. So now they still don't believe it. He's standing in front of them. He's even telling them, it's me. But now they've been take, taking him to the Pharisees. The Jews will not believe. And so the Bible tells they call his parents, verse 19. And they ask him saying, is this your son who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? They're asking the question of the parents. Certainly the parents, by the way, ought to know if it's their son or not, right? I hope, you, I hope if you have children, you at least know if it's your child, right? So parents called, hey, is this your child? How, how, is he, how, is, how is he able to see now? It says in verse number 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. This is certainly our son. He was born blind. Now he's healed. And they even go on and say, why don't you ask him? He'll give you proof. He'll give you an answer. He'll give you a testimony of what happened. And so then we finish this thought. In verse number 24, the Bible says, Then again called they the man that was blind. Now again, much scrutiny is taking place here. Is this really the man? Now we've got to call his parents to be able to figure out. Now they're going to call him again to be able to get an answer from him again. Much scrutiny is taking place, but it's always going to be proven when God performs a miracle, isn't it? And notice what it says in verse number 24. I love this statement. You might remember this when we preached it a couple weeks ago now. It says, then called they the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. 
He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. All proof of the fact that I was blind, but now I see. This man, who, by the way, they were trying to, uh, 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 to give uh, proof that he was a sinner. But he says, well, I don't know all the details, but I just know that I was blind. And he said, now I see. It reminds us, and I mentioned this that day I preached it. It reminds us of that song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Hey, there's proof. When Jesus performs a miracle, even if there's others around that want to offer, their, offer the scrutiny of it, it's always proven when Jesus performs a miracle. Again, our answer can be, I, I was there when it happened. I know it took place. And proof of the fact that Jesus performs miracles. His, his miracles are credible, aren't they? And we can thank the Lord for that. Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 5, or at least maybe you're already there. In Luke chapter number 5, we're going to look at a miracle. By the way, this is the only uh, gospel that this miracle is recorded in. So we would only see this in the book of Luke. I hope and I trust that as we go through this message this morning... In Luke chapter number 5, you will be able to make some applications today from this. This is the goal of this. We're going to preach one of Jesus' miracles. And I'm trusting that you'll make applications. I'm trusting that our teenagers in here will be able to make some applications. Our adults that are in here. Uh, our, our, our senior citizens today. All of us. Everybody that's here today. That we would make application as we hear from the word of God. We're going to notice uh, some, some thoughts here. Starting in verse number 1. Look at verse number 1, if you would, of Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Notice. And it came to pass... That as people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. So here's Jesus, the Bible says, and a crowd is gathering. They're gathering for a purpose. They're not gathering because there's a ball game about ready to be played, although crowds will gather for that. They're not gathered because there's some type of, a, of, of an event going on. But they are gathered for a specific purpose, aren't they? Notice the Bible gives us that purpose that they are gathered for. It says they're gathered to hear Jesus preach the word of God. Now the greatest preacher that ever walked on the earth, of course, was Jesus. The greatest teacher that would have ever taught on this earth would have been the Lord. Could you imagine being in that crowd that day to get to hear Jesus preach? You can understand why they longed to hear him. And so it says there again in verse number one, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, Notice they're pressing upon him. They're crowded around him to hear the word of God. Now the Bible says there's something special that happens when we hear the word of God. And it says that in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17. It says, that, so then faith cometh by hearing. Faith cometh by hearing. As a result of hearing the word of God, we can put our faith in Christ. Let's finish that verse. It says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What does the Bible say these people are interested in hearing? It says they pressed upon him to hear the word of God. They want to hear what Jesus is going to preach about that day. What's going to come from his mouth. What will come from his lips that day. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They're here, the Bible says, by the lake of Gennesaret. By the way, just so that you can understand this, especially if you would perhaps want to study this a little bit more later or maybe look at this on a Bible map. This would be uh, the body of water that would also be referred to in the Bible as the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes the Bible also mentions it as the Sea of Tiberias. So again, when we're talking about the Lake of Gennesaret, we're talking about the Sea of Galilee, 
Sometimes, again, we, we, uh, uh, we hear it called the Sea of Tiberias as well. So that's where Jesus is, the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's interesting uh, that we have brought up the Sea of Galilee so much. You, you might remember when we were studying through some miracles in John, we talked about how the Sea of Galilee was so important. Remember how that Jesus uh, healed, uh, he, 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 would, he performed multiple miracles there by the Sea of Galilee. Then he got into a boat and he went from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He performed a miracle while he was on the sea. Remember the storm comes up on the water. And so again, the significance of the Sea of Galilee. Then when he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he comes to the country of the Gadarenes and he meets that demon-possessed man. He heals him and then he gets back in the boat and he heads to the other side, the eastern, uh, or the, excuse me, the western side again of the Sea of Galilee. Performs miracles when he gets there as well. And so I'm bringing that up because I think that you've probably noticed as we've been preaching through the miracles of Jesus Christ that much of Jesus' ministry and much of the, many of the miracles that he performed centered around or occurred near this body of water. So as far as the ministry and the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ, this body of water was very important because a lot of what he did in his ministry and his miracles centered around or occurred near this, this body of water, the Sea of Galilee. So here he is at the Lake of Gennesaret, and the Bible says it uses a unique word in verse number five, or in, sorry, in chapter five, verse number one. Look back at that if you would. And it came to pass that as, as people pressed upon him, they pressed upon him. Now, again, there was, a, there was a reason why they're pressing upon him, to hear the word of God. But that, pre, that word pressed, it has the idea of an urgency. You're surrounding somebody, surrounding in an urgent way. I, I think the illustration or the application that we can use here is we get to see the passion or the sense of urgency or the interest of those people to hear the word of God. And as we see their passion, as we see the urgency and the interest to hear the word of God, I think it speaks to their spiritual condition. I think it says much or it gives a good indicator of their spiritual condition. You say, well, what do you mean by all that? They desired to hear the word of God. I think it gives an indication of what their, the spiritual condition of their heart was. They were hungry spiritually. They were wanting to hear the word of God. They, they, sound, they found satisfaction in hearing the, the word of God that came from the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, isn't he? So they found satisfaction by hearing the word of God that came from the mouth of the bread of life, who was able to satisfy the needs of everyone who was gathered there. And I guess the application is this. Do you have that same attitude? Do you have, Evaluate your heart this morning. Do you have that same attitude when it comes to, to your, a hunger for the word of God? Do you hunger for him and for his words? Do you, do you desire to know him more? Do you desire to learn more about him? And how you ought to serve him and how you ought to live for him in a better way. Or perhaps would you say, if I look into my heart, I would have to honestly say, I'm consumed with something else. 
I'm not consumed with the Lord the way I should be, but I'm consumed with something else. Let me ask it this way. Maybe perhaps this would be a way you could answer it in your heart. Is, is, is Sunday enough for you? Or would you say outside of the, 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 the services on Sunday, outside of the walls of God's house, I just have to have more. I hunger and I thirst for the word of God. That's what these people show. That's the character that they're indicating, the indicator of their heart here. Their, the urgency to be able to crowd and to press around Jesus to be able to hear the word of God that is preached. You know, there are several verses that speak to this. We're not going to turn to them, but in Psalm 42 and verse number 1, you may be familiar with this verse. It says, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Would you say that your soul pants after God as much as the deer would pant after the water brook? Thirsty and just going to that water to be able to get a drink. Would you say your soul thirsts after the Lord that much? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 6, it says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the individuals who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It says at the end of the verse, for they shall be filled. They shall be satisfied as they hunger and they thirst after righteousness. Psalm 107 and verse number 9 says these words. It says, for he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Would you say your soul is longing after him? Would you say your soul is hungry to be filled with the good and satisfied with the goodness of God? Remember in John chapter 4 where that lady comes to the well and she meets Jesus? Remember what Jesus says to her. He says, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give shall never thirst again. Isn't it great to know that you can go to Jesus and he can satisfy you? Are you uh, perhaps in a, in a spiritual drought today? Are you perhaps spiritually hungry enough to say, I'm hungering and I'm thirsting after the Lord? Isn't it great to know that if we would say today we're in a spiritual drought or we're spiritually thirsty, isn't it great to know that you can go to him and he can satisfy the need that you have? May we be as these individuals give us a wonderful application or a wonderful example. They crowd and they press upon Jesus to be able to hear the word of God. I want to get into some thoughts about this miracle. Number one, I want us to notice the pulpit of Jesus. I want us to notice the pulpit of Jesus. You say, well, wait a minute now. Did Jesus literally have some kind of a pulpit set up there where the crowd could come around and he could get behind that pulpit and he could be able to thunder the words of God? No, but he does set up a pulpit, as it were. Look with me, if you would, at verse number one. The Bible says this again. And it came to pass as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God. He stood by the lake of Genesaret. You can almost picture Jesus as he's just backing up as the crowd is pressing him. And he gets to the place where the water's close by. And so now he says, I've got to set up a pulpit somehow. So that I can preach the word of God and they can be attentive and they can listen to it. So notice what he says in verse number two. And saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. So now you can see he sees two empty uh, boats that are there. And the Bible tells us that he gives a command in verse number 3. Notice what he says. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. So he asked him, would you, would you shove this out a little bit? Or would you push this out from the land a little bit? And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. One man once said this. I want you to really concentrate on this statement. 
A man once said this. He said that every pulpit is a fishing boat. Now think about that today. Every pulpit is a fishing boat. He went on to finish the statement by saying this. That it is a place to give out the word of God and attempt to catch fish. Think about that today. Every pulpit is a fishing boat. When a preacher gets up behind this pulpit and he preaches from the word of God, it's a fishing boat. Because he's giving out the word of God and he's attempting to catch fish, isn't he? And that's what Jesus does. He launches out from the water just a little bit or he thrusts out from the water just a little bit. He sits inside of that boat and he uses it as a pulpit to preach the word of God from. Now, there is a missionary letter board that we have in the back. And that missionary letter board is there for the purpose of folks getting to read missionary letters. We don't have time in our services to read all of those letters. So they're set up back there where we can read our, you can read our missionary updates. There's an update in there, at least I believe it's still in there, from our missionary to South Africa, Brother David McCrum. And he talks about how that he had invested and his ministry had invested in buying a boat. Now they bought a boat for a purpose. The boat was to, to be used to go out and to witness to people on this boat there in South Africa. And so they call it, I might say the wrong words, you'd have to read the letter to get it exactly right, but they call it either, the, it, it's either referred to as the gospel boat or the gospel ship. And they're using that in their ministry to be able to reach people in a way that they cannot reach them unless they're inside of that boat and, and, and have the opportunity to reach out to them with the gospel. Think about the pulpit that Jesus used. He even, uh, I believe in, in his letter, if I remember correct, he even referenced that. The fact that Jesus had a pulpit from a boat. He sat in the boat and he shared the word of God to those that wanted to so desperately and so urgently hear the word of God. Jesus sets up a pulpit. Notice the Bible says in verse number 3 that he gives a command to Peter. I want you to notice this real quickly. Look at verse number 3. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. He gives this to command to Peter. Now for Peter, this command may have seemed inconvenient. Here's Peter working on his, boat, uh, working on his nets. He had to make sure that he took care of his nets. They needed to be washed so they wouldn't rot. So they wouldn't break. And here I'm in the middle of working and Jesus has asked me to do something. But even if perhaps he would have looked at it as inconvenient, he still got up. I would imagine Peter was even tired. Because if you think about this, they had been fishing all night. We'll see that in just a moment. He was probably tired. He's working to prepare his nets so that he can get ready for the next time of fishing. It may have seemed inconvenient, but he got up and he obeyed and he did what God asked him to do. Can I say this? There may be some times in the service of the Lord where you say it's not necessarily convenient. It's not necessarily even what I think I'd like to do. I'm a little tired. It's not convenient what God has asked me to do. But can I encourage you just be faithful at it. Just be faithful. Just obey the Lord. He may have looked at it as being inconvenient. He may have looked at it as being insignificant. I mean, after all, Jesus could just stand on the shore and preach. Is it really that important that we pull out the boat so that he can get in the boat? He may have even looked at it as being insignificant. But can I remind you of the fact that he obeyed? You say, why are you bringing that up? Because I think this verse, verse 3, that shows us the obedience of Peter, helps us to understand his obedience a little bit later in the passage. We've got to notice his step of obedience here in some, in some small, perhaps inconvenient and seemingly insignificant request so that we can see God using his faith 
in a command that he gives him in verses to come. We see the pulpit of Jesus. Number two, I want you to notice the commands of Jesus. The commands of Jesus. Look with me if you would at verse number four. Verse number four, notice there's two commands here. Two commands that Jesus gives. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon. So now he's done preaching. He's preached the word of God. Can you imagine that crowd that got to hear him as he's in that boat? He's done preaching, and now the Bible says, he says unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. He gives him two commands there. Number one, launch out, and then number two, let down your nets. So he is to launch out, and he is to let down. Now let's go back to what we said in verse number three, because this is where obedience is so important. Notice in verse three, he said to thrust out. A little. Thrust out just a little. Then in verse number four, he says, launch out into the deep. So at first, Peter is just thrusting out. He's just pushing the boat out just a little bit. But now he's been asked to launch out into the deep. Peter obeyed in what seemed to be perhaps small, perhaps inconvenient, perhaps even insignificant, and now, because he obeyed in the first step, he's now going to get to see a miracle. Aren't you thankful when times are inconvenient, perhaps, or when you might look at something as being insignificant, aren't you thankful that you've made choices to obey the Lord so that down the road you can get to see miracles? Notice what Jesus says in his commands. Again, verse number four, it says this, launch out. The word launch out has the idea of asking Peter and those fishermen to return to the spot where they were fishing already. Return to the spot where, 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 where you're fishing. Return to that place where you have tried all night to fish. And at this point you have failed all night long. But, I'm at, but Jesus is asking him to return Launch out. Get back out to where you were. But wait a minute, Lord, I failed all night long. But return. Go back to where you were. And then he says, let down. They're to let down their nets when they get to that spot. And then the Bible says in verse number four that you're going to have a draught. Meaning this, you're going to have a catch of fish. You obey my words and you'll have a catch of fish if you obey me. You're going to get to reap blessings you're going to get to reap success if you will choose to obey me. Now, Peter may have been at this particular moment in the passage of Scripture, Peter may have been a little surprised when a carpenter was trying to instruct an experienced fisherman. Here I'm an experienced fisherman fishing on the Sea of Galilee all the time, and now here comes a carpenter trying to give me instructions. As a matter of fact, those instructions may not have even made sense because typically they would fish on the Sea of Galilee and their fishing would be at night. It would be in water that would be much more shallow. And so the instructions that were given, perhaps for Peter, may have seemed illogical, may have seemed like they would have resulted in fruitlessness. We're not going to even benefit from this. So... This was all contrary to all of his training. It was contrary to all of his experience as an experienced fisherman. Isn't it amazing? Let's make an application here for a moment. 
Isn't it amazing that there are times in our life where God asks us to do things that we may, in our mind, in our heart, it may seem like it doesn't make sense. Have you ever had a time like that in your life? Here, I'm an experienced fisherman listening to a carpenter give me instructions that go against every training and every experience I've ever had. God sometimes uses things that do not make sense to us to help us to see his goodness, to have miracles performed in our lives. I'm going to read some verses. I want you to consider this thought with these verses. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, the Bible says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. That's true of God, isn't it? His thoughts are not our thoughts. We may say, God, if I would have done it, if I would have made the final decision, I would have done it differently. But God's thoughts are not my thoughts. Notice the verse goes on to say this. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Your way is not my way. God says, I've got a different way of doing things. It may not always make sense to you, but I can take care of you. I can, I can perform miracles in your life. Verse number 9, it says this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we would just learn to trust the Lord. It may not always make sense, but if we would just learn to trust the Lord. Think about, think about, uh, think about all throughout the Bible, illustrations that we could give of things that people were asked to do that just didn't make sense. Think about Jericho. If you just march around the walls, the, wa the walls will come tumbling down. That doesn't make any sense. God, why would you ask me to march around the walls? But God, I'll do it. If you ask me to do it, I'll do it. And what, what, what do we sing in that song? We sing that song, that children's song. We sing, and the walls came tumbling down. God asked them to do something unusual, something that perhaps even defied logic, but they said, Lord, I'll do it. Think about Gideon. Gideon was asked with 300 men to battle this large army with trumpets and pitchers and harps and, and, and uh, excuse me, and lamps and candles. And here he is asked to defeat this, this gigantic army with these trumpets and these pitchers and these candles. But God got the victory, didn't he? Unusual. We wouldn't have done it that way. But God was able to get the victory. Think about that uh, widow who uh, fed Elijah. We think of that story. That, that widow says, the only, the only supplies I have left in my house are supplies for me to make a cake for my son and I. We're going to eat that cake and then we're going to die because we have nothing left. And what did the prophet say to her? Make me a cake first. Well, wait a minute, you must not have understood what I said. I said that if we make this cake, we're going to get to eat it, and then we're going to die. That's all we have left. Make me a cake first. Just trust God, and God will meet your need. God will perform a miracle. And God did meet the need, didn't, she? didn't he, as the widow obeyed and did what God asked her to do. Think about uh, uh, the story a little bit later in that same, uh, that same book. We're thinking about the books of Kings where we see Elijah and Elisha. The story of Elisha as he, uh, as he approaches that widow who said, the only thing I have left in my house is a jar of oil. And remember, she had a lot of debt, right? She had to pay a lot of debt. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to knock on doors. I want you to gather up all kinds of pots and bring them in your house. Then close the doors behind you, start pouring that oil out until it runs dry. She pours it out in pot after pot after pot after pot. And God's able to meet all the financial needs she has by taking that oil and selling it to meet the needs that she had to pay all of her bills. 
Wait, it doesn't make sense. You're asking me to go to people's houses and gather empty pots and bring them back into my house? It doesn't make sense. But God, I'll do what you ask me to do. Think of the story of Naaman. If you dip in the Jordan River seven times, your leprosy will be gone. Wait, come on now. That doesn't make any sense to just dip, to go down to the Jordan River and dip in the Jordan River seven times. That doesn't make sense. Matter of fact, maybe even his servant said to him, if he would have asked you to do something difficult so that your leprosy could be healed, you would have done it, wouldn't you? He's asked you to do something very simple. All you got to do is dip in the water seven times and you can picture almost in your mind, Naaman as he comes up the seventh time and looks at his arm, whoa. You know, I'm healed. Something that I would not have thought of as being normal. Something that I would have said would defy all logic or training or experience that I would have had in the past. But yet, Lord, if that's what you ask me to do, I will do it. So the Lord gives commands. And then I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the obedience of Peter. We saw the pulpit of Jesus. We saw the commands of Jesus. I want you to notice the obedience of Peter. There's a few steps that Peter had to make in this story, in order to get to this place of obedience. Peter had to humble himself. Because again, as an experienced fisherman, you'd say, this is not normally how I would do this. So he had to humble himself. He had to make steps of faith as well. Lord, if you say it, then I will believe it. But he also had to obey. It's one thing to say something, and it's another thing to practice it or act on it. He acted on it, didn't he? He obeyed. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 5, if you would. It says this, And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. That's the part of the verse where we would say Peter is saying in such a way it doesn't make sense. We've toiled all night long. We've labored all night, Lord, and we've gotten nothing. What makes you think, again, he didn't say it this way, but in our mind we're picturing what makes you think that if we would do it again now, we would get anything. But notice what Peter says at the end of verse number 5. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. We'll come back to verse number 5 in a moment. Notice verse 6. And when he had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. The obedience of Peter. Can I ask this? I just gave you three different truths about the character of, of, of Peter that got him to this step of obedience. He had to humble himself. He had to have faith. And the steps of humility and faith led to his obedience. I'll ask you by way of application this morning. Again, considering these things throughout the preaching time, are those your attitudes? Do you have enough humility? Do you have enough faith to say, God, I'm willing to obey you? No matter what you ask, I've got to humble myself because this isn't how I normally would do it. God, to me, it seems like it doesn't make sense. God, I've got to put faith in you because I don't know what the end result is going to be. I'm not seeing it with my eyes yet, but I'm trusting you. And it leads me to a step of obedience. Are these your attitudes? This is the attitude of Peter. I'm willing to obey you. Remember what Proverbs 3 says. For some of you, that might be a verse that you have put into practice many times in your life. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Are you trusting in the Lord enough to say, it doesn't have to be my way, God. I'm acknowledging your way I let you have control, and I'm just willing to obey. Now back up to verse number 5. I told you we'd come back there. He says, Master, we've toiled all night and have, not, and, have, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Here's what Peter is saying. 
in, in, in other words, he's saying it this. If you say it, God, I'll do it. God, if you say it, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to have to humble myself. I'm going to have to put some faith in you. But Lord, if you say it, I will do it. Can I ask you, is that your attitude today? If God says it, then I'll do it. It doesn't have to make sense. But God, if you say it, I will do it. Would you be willing to apply that statement in your life to areas of your life in which God requires you to obey? Would you say, God, if you say that I ought to put you first in my life, and you say that I ought to put you first in my giving, financially giving to you, Lord, would you say to God, then I'll do it. If that's what you say, then I'll do it. God, if you say I ought to forgive and love those who hurt me and offend me, God, then I'll do it. Uh, young people today, God, if you say obey my parents, then I'll do it. Is that our attitude today? Wives, would you say, God, if you say that I'm, submit, I'm, I'm to submit to my husband, God, then I'll do it. Husbands, would we say, God, if you say that I'm supposed to love my wife, God, if it's, that's what you tell me I'm supposed to do, then I'll do it. And I'll be glad about doing it. As a matter of fact, I'll do it with a joyful heart. God, if you say that I'm supposed to be faithful to church, then I'll do it. I can't forsake the house of the Lord because, God, you say that I'm to be faithful to church. And if you say I'm to be faithful to church, then, God, I'll do it. God, if you say I'm to walk with you daily, then, God, I need to do it. Is that our attitude today? An attitude of obedience. Notice Peter's attitude. We'll, we'll come to a close here. Notice Peter's attitude in verse number 5. He uses a word to reference Jesus. Notice the word he uses. He says, Master. Master. Notice the word master. The word master there is, of course, a reference or a title of Jesus, but it pictures authority. It pictures authority. It's Peter's way of saying, God, you have authority to make commands. You have authority to give commands. My duty, my obligation is just to obey. Peter submitted to the authority of Jesus. Can I say this? We will always labor in vain and we will always, our labor will always be very fruitless if we are disobedient to the Lord and if we are not involving Him in our service. Here's Peter. Christ is involved and Christ is obeyed. We will always be laboring in vain. We will always be very fruitless if we choose to disobey and we do not have Jesus involved in our place of service. He is the one who gives us the power. He's the one who performs the miracles. He's the one that we look back to and say, God, it was your power. It was your authority that made such a thing happen that I'm, that I'm seeing in my life. Can I say this, and I hope you'll apply this to your life today. If you choose to obey God, he will never disappoint you. He will never disappoint you. You'll never be disappointed if you choose to obey him. And it leads towards the end here. I want us to notice the results of his obedience. Notice the results of his obedience. Quickly, verse number, six, verse number six. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes in their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were on the, in, the, in the other ship, that they would come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. What are we seeing there? Obedience brought a blessing, didn't it? 
Obedience brought success. They were able to reap blessings because of the, the obedience that they had for the Savior. Think about the quantity of fishes that were caught. And then we get towards the end of the passage here. We notice the confession of Peter. Notice Peter's confession. Verse number 8, when, Pe when, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. Notice Peter's wonder of the Lord's blessing. The, the, the confession that he makes to the Lord. God, it's you that has blessed us. It's your power that has made this possible. And did you notice it humbled Peter? It got Peter down to the knees, the Bible says, of Jesus. Unawareness, notice he even mentioned the fact that he was a sinner. Unawareness of how holy God is and how sinful really we are. The confession of Peter. And then tonight, or this morning, we'll close with this. Verse 10 and verse number 11 finishes this little passage of Scripture. You notice we see the call and the surrender of these disciples. They are called and then they surrender. To finish this little passage, look at verse 10. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Now instead of trying to catch fish so that they can die, you're now going to catch men so they can live. You're now going to catch men. You're now going to try to go after life so that you can point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus calls, but they still have to be willing to surrender, don't they? And I think we see that in verse number 11. Notice what it says. By the way, notice the requirements of surrender. In verse number 11. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Here are the requirements. You've got to forsake all and you've got to follow him. If you're going to surrender, you've got to forsake all and you've got to follow him. Think about this. Think about what they forsook. They brought their nets and they left it all there. Now, are you picturing this in your mind as I'm picturing it? That means they even had to leave that large draught of fish they had caught. Man, we accomplished great things, but God, this is now behind us. We forsake that and we go to follow you. Are you willing in surrender to remove hindrances or remove your own desires from your life and replace them with following the Lord and what he would have you to do? That's what surrender is. It's taking your hands off of your life and saying, God, I'm willing to forsake all and just follow you. Now, I truly believe that that does not mean that God is going to make us miserable. Some people say, well, yeah, but I, I have to forsake what I enjoy so that I can follow the Lord. No, the Bible says delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Which means that if you're willing to forsake all and you're willing to follow him and you're willing to say, God, I love you that much. Then what you desire will be the same thing that God desires for you. He's not going to make your life miserable, is he? But the step of surrender is to say, I'm going to forsake all and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to let God use my abilities. I'm going to let God use my gifts to serve him and to bring honor and glory to him. Let me ask you some questions by way of application while we turn to our invitation this morning. We think back to the message that we preached this morning and it had so many different applications. I'm going to ask you this. Are you hungry for the word of God? 
Are you hungering and thirsting after God's word? We talked about that in the passage of scripture this morning. Are you hungering? Are you thirsting? Are you like that deer that pants after the water brook? Or is your soul that thirsty for the Lord? If not, perhaps to ask him today, Lord, help me to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Help me to hunger and thirst after your word. Do you have the attitudes that we told you Peter had? The attitudes of humility, the attitudes of faith, the attitudes of obedience. Are you willing to say, Lord, if you say to do it, I'm going to do it. And then let me ask you this. If God has called you in a special way to do something special for him, have you surrendered to that? Have you just made that step of surrender to just say, Lord, whatever it is that you'd have me to do, I'm willing to do it. Have you surrendered yourself to the Lord? Then let me ask the greatest question that we could ever ask in a service. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Would you be able to say today, there's a, there's a time and a place that I can go back to where I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not about salvation being a process. It's about a time where we've said, I've called on the name of the Lord. Then we grow to be the Christian God wants us to be. But it's not about the light, a process in life and we grow into salvation. Have you, do you have a time and a place where you say, I could go back to where I put my faith and trust in the Lord and I know for sure that I'm on my way to heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd bless the message as it's been preached today. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us by the application.